Hello and welcome to episode 45 of the Good Good Golf Podcast, Rod Murray Guiding Proceedings as we take our weekly wander into anything and everything to do with the game of golf. On today's episode, we're going to meet one of the founders of one of the very first of what I think we can safely call the new print media, long before Golfers Journal or McKellar Magazine, Caddy Magazine was launched right here in Australia by photographer and golf nut William Watt, along with some friends and colleagues, Watt decided there was a place in the market for a golf magazine with a difference. And five years on, not only does Caddy Magazine continue to find success, but Will has graduated to releasing a book. More about all of that when we meet Will in just a moment. But first, as always, time to say hello to my co-host, Adrian Logue, who I don't think had a hole-in-one this week, but I'm sure he does have a highlight for us for later in the show. Logue, welcome. Uh, thanks very much, Rod. I, oh, you put me on the spot. I've got a whole episode to think about a highlight now, do I? Did I not tell you last week that every episode we're going to do a highlight because we talked about doing it weeks ago and then we didn't go on with it? I don't know. It's, it's like very, you don't listen. When your life is just a series of highlights, <laughs> it's hard to pick just one thing. Did you have a highlight this week or not? I don't, but did you? Uh, not a golfing highlight. I, I, I count my putts. I realize, you know, stroke Why? Gained, strokes, gained, I know, <laughs> strokes gained isn't a stat that's available to people. So counting putts is the easiest thing. And I realize you have to have a lot of five putts to have 38 putts in a round because, you know, you get some pretty much freebie one putts. Well, when you miss as many greens as we do. At our level, yeah. you should be having less putts if your chipping's even half decent. Yeah, so that's not the case with me. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's kind of like that, isn't it? All right. Uh, you can find Logue at adrianlogue.com or on Twitter. I'm doing this for you this week, taking the workload off you so you don't have to be prepared. Uh, on Twitter at, at adrianlogue. If you want to get in touch with me, I'm on Twitter at, at rod underscore Murray. DMs are open. You can also email me direct at rod at talkandgolf.com, just the one G in Talk and Golf, as regular listeners will know. Well, while we're on that subject, why not head over to talkandgolf.com and check out some of the other excellent golf podcasts that are available there. Enough about us. Time to introduce today's guest. And I miss, as I mentioned in the intro, he's a fellow golf media type, but with a bit of a difference. Caddy Magazine is the brainchild of Will Watt, and his first book, Lofted, Remarkable and Far-Flung Adventures for the Modern Golfer, is now available. It must be said, it's an extremely impressive debut in that world. Will, a mate of mine has been telling me for years that we need to meet. Finally, we're doing it. Welcome, and thank you for taking some time. I'm really looking forward to having a chat today. Absolute pleasure. Uh, Rob, it's a, um, I'm a long-time listener of yourself through the uh, State of the Game podcast, which was a pioneer in the space. Um, and, I've, yeah, it's, I've got a huge amount of respect for your work over the years and um, a very important voice in the game, I think. You're very kind, Will, and more of that will only take you further in life. Uh, state of the game you can find at the Talk and Golf Network. Mm. One of the, uh, as you say, one of the first in this. Well, I was doing Talk and Golf itself for a long time before we started State of the Game, but there wasn't podcasts back then. Mm. It was just online audio, so it was a very different world and a very different space. I'm sorry, Will. I just realised I've covered you up on our big screen with a great big recording thing that we're looking at, so my apologies for that. We've got maximum Will. Let's come back to it. What sort of person starts a golf magazine and why, Will? Awful lot of accountants would tell you that. It was nuts in 2015. What's the go? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, if, we, if we'd done a business plan, we wouldn't have, uh, wouldn't have gone into it, I, would, I don't think. Uh, but it was, it was really a... Um, a moment where I was on a flight um, coming out of Melbourne and the I bought all the golf magazines, as you do, uh, from the airport um, magazine stand and there was about a 20-minute delay on the tarmac 
And uh, by the time we took off, I'd read all three of them. And I, w- I spent the rest of that flight kind of thinking, you know, what would a, what would a golf magazine that I would want to read look like? Um, and sort of started brainstorming ideas from there. And there, at the time there'd been, it was around 2015, um, there was a bunch of new independent magazines coming out sort of um, around, or probably a couple of years prior to that, Kinfolk Magazine, Serial, uh, Monocle Magazine. And they were all um, a lot a lot, a lot different approach to traditional magazine, which was fairly um, commercially minded. These were more independent and um, kind of a deeper dive on topics um, and a heavy design and photography focus, uh, really nice paper stock and all the, all the little elements that uh, a magazine nerd like myself uh, tends to get excited about. So, um, yeah, throughout the rest of that flight, sort of started brainstorming what an indie mag might look like for golf and um, – then started tossing the idea around with some friends and everyone thought it was a pretty pretty good idea and and started to build a team of um, people who could help me put it together. I had skills in design photography and um, had done a little bit of writing, but um, I knew that um, it's not something you could take on alone. Um, so I got Dave Carswell, Cam Hassard and, and Jane Knight together and the four of us decided to go for it and crowdfunded our, our first issue, um, did a little video down at St Andrews Beach, sort of pitching the idea of this fresh approach to the game um, with a bit of a younger focus and um, a bit more of a relaxed vibe to it, focusing on the social elements of the game rather than the professional tour or um, the gear side of things or or uh, swing tips and that kind of stuff. So, But that's where the money is, Will. Mm. What the hell are you thinking? What are you, this money on the table? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I said, if we did a business plan, this would not have uh, got off the ground, I don't think. But that, that first crowdfunding went went well, and um, we we did a first print run of 3,000 copies, and uh, within about six months, that had sold out. So we decided to do another one, and, and it just sort of carried on from there. So we uh, now we're up to number eight, and um, it's been sold to over 50 countries, and we've got a really really strong readership and um, we're pretty happy with how the, the work that we've done. It's been a like, hard slog at times, I won't lie. It's been some, um, some, you know, it's a lot of work putting out um, one of these every six months. It's, it's almost, I mean, each one's probably 20,000, 30,000 words um, plus all the photography uh, work that we do is kind of very high standard we try and keep there, so. Yeah, to, to all the pedants out there, or pedants if you prefer, whichever one you'd like to be, just keep that in mind. I'm sure they've got a preference about That's how right. they want to yeah, no, no doubt I'll, I'll get an email to, telling me what's correct. Just keep that in mind next time you spot a typo oh, yeah. in a story, in a magazine, <laughs> or a newspaper, just what is involved. Lots of people would have had the idea, Will, and I'm, I'm sure- Ideas are you, cheap. They are. You, you didn't come from a media background. The work involved in producing something tangible that you can buy at a newsstand is way more than you could imagine unless you'd been involved, isn't it? way more it's just not as simple as take a photo write some words even digitally it's not it can be as simple as taking photo and write some words it's not going to be very good if that's the only thing you do though unless you happen to specialize in those two fields it's it's much more than it seems at the outset isn't it yeah and i definitely after i think it was volume two went out uh we were having a chat and 
I think the general consensus was if we knew how much work it was going to be, we wouldn't have started <laughs> it. Never, never yeah. would have started it. Good thing no. you didn't have an accountant or somebody who'd been in the media to explain those things to you before you got off the ground. Because in hindsight, I'm sure that you're glad that you did start it. Talk a little bit about that. It, there's this weird thing has happened in media. Media media production has become so much more accessible in all ways, including print. It simply wouldn't have been feasible to do what you've done 20 years ago. Impossible. Mainstream media, as we mm. like to call them, whatever the hell that is these days, owned the means of production. You'd have to have been engaged by a big publisher. That's right. So in TV, you had to have a license. In radio, you had yeah. to have a license. If you wanted to start a newspaper, you needed to have a printing press. and all, that. all of those things have changed and evolved slowly over time, not just digitally where you can do stuff online. I've been able to do that for a long time, but in that physical sort of print space. seems to me what's happened, what the internet has allowed both good and bad, is for groups of like-minded people in niche areas to find each other. We talk about golf course architecture on here a lot. 20 years ago, it might have been just me and Adrian. We might never have found a third. <laughs> it might have taken us years to find a third who was interested. Now there's dozens, even hundreds. And that's, I think, what these new print media publications have tapped into. McKellar, no advertising. Golfers Journal, limited advertising. No advertising in Caddy Magazine, I don't think. You sort of get what you pay for. What do you think about that market, Will? Are they two distinct markets? Are people who are buying Golf Digest and Golf Australia also buying Caddy? Or are they two separate markets? Because the first two are examples of media that we had for generations that worked. Find the biggest possible audience, sell to the lowest common denominator, the topics that you knew would sell to those. And that left an awful lot of us, in many ways, like you, wishing for more. You'd read the great interviews in the digest of the 80s and 90s. They'd go for six, seven, eight pages. They were fantastic. Can't be found anymore. Yep. You don't get that anymore. More and more it moved to these bite-sized commercial chunks. What's your take on all of that, Will, having come from outside the media and now being in the media? Because there is a commercial imperative. You spend money to print a magazine. You've got to sell enough to pay for it. And if you don't, someone's got to pick up the tab. And guess what? That someone's you. So just some thoughts on, on all of that and some of the lessons you might have learned coming from outside about that and the nature of that marketplace? Yeah, I think coming in with no experience in publishing um, and all the media really, um, having just worked as a freelancer uh, and as a designer within a, a larger company as well. Um, so the, your background's photography, isn't it? A commercial sort of photography, hospitality? photography, yeah. yeah weddings, that sort of thing, yeah. Conferences, yeah. Okay. Well, um, architecture. Oh, okay. Um, so I kind of had a, a different mindset towards it um, in terms of bringing that kind of freelancer um, idea behind it. And part of the um, business of Caddy is also doing um, production work as we've got Caddy Productions as well as the magazine. So we do do um, production work directly for um, we've done work with Golf Australia, Golf Victoria, um, and a lot of the big golf resorts as well. So Predominantly video, that isn't sort of drone footage and commercial shoots. I think Golf Australia did some PR campaigns around nine after five and get into yeah. golf and those sorts of things, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that, that was kind of in the back of my mind as well coming into it that um, the, the magazine could be a chance for us to kind of explain what the brand was about in a tangible form that um, somebody picks up the magazine, they immediately kind of understand the, the quality level that we're aiming for. Um, but I think in terms of the general way we launched using um, the digital 
landscape to be able to build our audience. It's definitely something that um, none of those traditional mastheads would have um, kind of considered at the time. And crowdfunding the first issue is a, a great way to find your audience because um, you're you've come out of nowhere. You've made this little video, two minute video, trying to explain what you're about, and without taking on any risk, really. Um, it's really just a concept at that stage. Uh, you're able to put the idea out there and and see if there's a market for it. So that that validation was very important early on uh, to be able to dive in without taking on uh, any risk really financially. Um, certainly a lot of time went into it, but um, that was sort of something that came out of passion anyway. So um, I think then being able to um, sort of jump on Instagram, start building our audience there. Uh, I had skills to be able to build a website, build a mailing list, all that kind of digital marketing side of things. So, um, yeah, Clean Slate allowed us to do things in a lot more uh, agile and um, streamlined way than probably some of the bigger publishers uh, had been set up to do. So we have very low costs. A lot of our work, we don't have an office or anything, so it's all done remotely. Um, we kind of come together online you know, on video calls and group chats to be able to keep everything ticking along. We've got uh, some some really good um, software for organizing all our to-do lists and um, our production schedule and what stories we're working on and who's where and, and um, who's able to leave their city at the moment, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I think trying to be – trying to make the most of technology and embrace – uh, any new tools or um, techniques we can use to keep things really streamlined and um, but maintain that level of quality has been something that we've focused on to be able to compete. We, we mentioned earlier, you know, ideas are cheap, but it's difficult to actually execute something like this. It, and you all probably were quite busy with, with a job at the time. Did you find crowdfunding sort of created this audience that you felt accountable to that you had to you had to deliver something to these people who'd shown some support to you? Yeah, absolutely. And the first edition, um, we we had kind of built up a, a catalogue over the years of stories that we thought could work there. And um, But, yeah, getting that to the level uh, of production quality that we wanted uh, was something very important. And, yeah, luckily I knew a... A friend of a friend who had started a surfing magazine uh, maybe 10 years ago called Paper Sea Quarterly, and they were sort of midway through their run, and he had a printer that they'd gone through three or four printers by that stage, and he said, look, I'll save you about $100,000 and tell you just to go with this printer, um, and that the, the quality of their magazine was amazing. So I knew that we, we had a really good printer on board. Um, we had a really good team. Um, and we had a really good bank of photography and, and design nows on the team. So I was fairly confident that the first issue would be something that stood out from the crowd. Um, but, yeah, the challenge then was finding, you know, six months later, we decided to do it every six months. So that, that puts a bit of pressure on in terms of finding, especially for probably issues two, three, and four, we kind of hadn't really built up our contributor network as much as we have now. And um, finding stories to, to fill the pages because um, quite, I think, each issue is 
um, we're looking at sort of 12 or 10 to 12 um, feature stories. So um, being able to make sure those are a high enough standard to, as I said um, earlier on, you know, something that will last you the whole aeroplane flight, not just um, 20 minutes while you're heading out to, to um, transit. What, what is it with surfing magazines leading to golf magazines because the the uh the surface journal yeah, yeah journal. the journal uh was the same sort of story well there's actually a bit of a crossover there isn't it yeah surfing the, and golf are two individual pursuits very individual pursuits where you travel to different places to experience different characteristics different breaks and characters yeah. there's some there's some sort of uh crossover there it's a real reader first mentality will which some people might be surprised isn't always the case necessarily at a a commercial operation a mainstream operation where you have a publisher who might have several magazines that they're doing at any given time and they're in business to make money and so commercial priorities can take over having done it the other way now i'm sure you can see the reasoning behind that coming up with 10 to 12 really interesting good stories finding someone who's capable of writing them well and in, in, in an interesting way is a lot harder than putting in a series of swing tips or another course review, etc., etc., etc. So where do you come up with the ideas for stories, that sort of offbeat thing? There's some offbeat stuff to be in Caddy, some really interesting stuff, one I'm going to ask you about in particular shortly because it touches something we talk about here from time to time. Where do those ideas come from? Because <clears throat> at some point you run out, don't you? You just run uh, out of ideas yourself. <clears throat> you almost ran out of voice there. You really ran out of voice, that's right. <laughs> well, we certainly have a... Um it's probably after edition three and four, we sort of really got rolling after that. And now it's more a matter of curating. So we have a lot of people sending in uh, their contribution ideas. Mm-hmm. And um, at this point, it's more about figuring out what each edition is going to have um, some kind of focus. It's usually pretty loose, but um, that, that tends to guide us on uh, curating those stories that come through. And we really haven't um, struggled for stories. It's more just um, finding some finding a path that's of interest, and then um, thinking creatively about that, and letting the ideas um, kind of come together. And yeah, it's been it's been an awesome experience being able to um, sort of pursue this passion for golf through having a, a magazine as a way for us to lead into it. So, you know, I remember back in um, volume two, we were driving around New Zealand and we were heading for Cape Kidnappers and I was doing some research on it and sort of, there wasn't a heap out there and I thought I'd reach out and email Tom Doak about to see if he had any thoughts on it and he replied in about 10 minutes. Mm. And I was sort of amazed at that kind of access um, that we were able to get very early on with um, not a lot behind us and and sent him a list of questions and he got back to me and with really thoughtful answers and and said that um, you know he was really impressed with the line of questioning there and uh, so that sort of gave us a bit of confidence straight away to say you know it's not um, it's not rocket science to be able to create an interesting story and and um, be curious about uh, the game and and try and convey that curiosity onto the printed page. So it's um yeah just staying curious and and following following our nose really. Loves an email interview, Tom. 
Less so does he like to sit down and talk, but he loves an email interview. We had Tom Coyne on the iSeek podcast, which was the precursor to this podcast some time ago, and we realised fairly early on that what he'd discovered was the world's greatest golf tax break, and it seems that you're in on the party as well. That's the truth of it, isn't it, Will? <laughs> I, I mean... When Kate Kidnappers is a legitimate work expense... You've, you've hit on something pretty good, my friend. There's so, no well, one from the ATO listening. Yeah, that's okay. right. None of them play golf. Oh, uh, dear. I jest. It certainly wasn't part of the plan, but uh, <laughs> it, does, it does help um, getting access and, yeah, writing well, off a few things. Well, at what point did this become a full-time job for you, or are you still doing other work? Or is, is this the sort of job you have to explain to your parents? It's like, <laughs> I actually make money doing this, or Yeah, so Caddy uh, takes up about 70 percent of my time i still do freelance photography work but it's um fairly sporadic and i actually can't work at the moment here in melbourne with the lockdown um there's no on-site photography allowed so um full focus at the moment but yeah as i said with the production work as well that's been something that's um picked up alongside the magazine so that's um we're doing um we're actually doing some websites now for for different golf courses and um, flyover videos and there's there's plenty of um, there's plenty of work to be done in that space. I guess the overarching um, kind of I, I know it's a bit naff to talk about a company mission or anything like that, but um, the the idea behind Caddy is really to help elevate the way golf is presented. So that that opens up for us um, the chance to help golf clubs as well present their golf club better and just present golf as the greatest game in the world, which we believe it is. And I just think going back, you know, five, six years ago, it wasn't being presented that way. And we weren't really um, capturing the the new golfer as well as we could. It was kind of this hardcore, um, hardcore core of golfers that um, was, it felt inaccessible to a lot of people. I know I played with I think even um, recently, Rod, you were talking about um, how you've been asking people at your club why they play, and a lot of them weren't really sure, and that some of them just do it to pass time. Um, I don't think at golf has been great at reaching out to those sort of people and um, getting them more curious about the game. So that was something that we've been trying to do is bridge that gap between the the a really hardcore golfer and the maybe just socially interested and, and plays a, a little bit maybe you know two three times a year kind of golfer ironically i mean caddy caddy mag itself is for the guy who's deep into it the, the golfer who's deep into the game um, but i can see the attraction because golf clubs have some of the most beautiful assets of any sport in the world and yet they do present themselves on the and look i'm in this business a little bit with the web and um and delivering services to clubs and they're just incredibly unsophisticated about how they combine technology and really great design there's very little sort of world-class design in golf in the golf industry in general isn't it a direct result of golf clubs in particular who own most of the assets thinking that their market is existing golfers and no nobody or nothing beyond that yeah it's a problem for the whole golf industry there's this whole sea of people we don't need to look beyond because they're existing golfers and that's our market. And that's why you don't get any fresh and new thinking, I reckon. And Will's touched on something about image there, which I think is important. Even to existing golfers, though, the 
the most of the material people get to consume, I think, is pretty bland and I'm not watered school, down. But, and yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And sort of broad, broadcast level where it's all sort of lowest common denominator, where, whereas something like Caddy Mag goes deep on a specific topic and it's really engaging, which, you know, fits that model of what Will originally hit on uh, waiting in the airport lounge. Um, so, you know, I, I find that find that fascinating. It, it's an area the golf is just ripe for ripe for oh. disruption in that, in that way. Visuals have always been. That all taps into, Will, something that I found interesting. I did a bit of research this morning. I was reading around and I stumbled across an interview that you did with, I think it's a magazine, some sort of an architecture magazine. And the lead into the story, the journal basically wrote, I'm not interested in golf. Why would I be? It's slow and boring and for old people. Forget about the rest of it. The rest of the story was very good and it was about the magazine and when you launched, I think it was from 2017. What about that image of golf from non-golfers? What can we in golf do about that, given that we've just slurred the entire golf world with being only interested in existing golfers? Yeah, I think it's a huge problem. And it's interesting in the last couple of years, we've also seen golf become part of the political debate, which I think is concerning. Um, seeing even, I mean, you've got Donald Trump out there just really um, playing up to that stereotype, uh, which, you know, for a lot of people who have no experience with golf, that that's kind of what they see it as. It's uh, elitist and um, Carts, kind of a middle-aged white men, bad dress, uh, exclusive and exclusionary. Uh, for wealthy people. Sorry, I didn't mean take to cut you off there. Take up a lot of time. Using a whole lot of time, resources and land Water. should be devoted to other people who um, – anyway, sorry, William, I think you were getting to all that. <laughs> I just can't help myself. It just drives me nuts, all that stuff. So what do we do about yeah. that? I guess is the question. And and even up in Sydney there, you've got um, Clover Moore kind of cracking in on, um, on some of the use of land. And, yeah, it's a big problem, and I think it's something um, that – we're trying to address it's i i think i mean sorry so adrian said that caddy is really for the hardcore golfer i i would tend to disagree a little bit um in that we try to include stories in there that someone who's never even played golf would still find interesting so it's the and also even just the design and um the way we present the magazine is trying to engage people without them having to have this, um, without having the golf bug. So that's something we've tried to do just through design photography and um, presenting the game in a way that um, sparks an interest. Maybe if it's um, a, a, a little piece we might do on the, um, the Arnold Palmer drink where we, we sort of did a bit of a deep dive on the history of that drink and got a we commissioned an, an artist to illustrate the, the drink in a beautiful way and gave that a two-page spread like that's not something that you need to be interested in golf to read about necessarily um you might just flick onto that story and it's um and 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 then also with some of the travel pieces um, like the the story we did on Askenish in scotland the golf course there is very interesting in itself, but it's also just an interesting travel story. So there's, I think, embracing the fact that golf is played all around the world and in some of the most amazing places in the world um, 
is a good way to get people who are interested in travel to then maybe think about um, golf as being part of that um, way to build an itinerary as well. I know that's probably um, something that hardcore golfers do more so is like build an itinerary around golf. But certainly, at least with my wife, that, that she's kind of enjoyed that being a way to explore. And um, fortunately, she we, we went to St. Andrews um, on our honeymoon and she was like, I actually love St. Andrews. I was like, well, that's that's good because – You're going to be spending some time there alone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, love, I've got some golf pools. Well, we're touching on some themes today, aren't we, people? I hope you're enjoying our chat with Caddy Magazine founder Will Watt as much as we are. And while you're listening, there are two other things you could be doing that would enhance the experience. One is to surf over to talkandgolf.com and check out some of the other excellent offerings on the network, from Dr. Kelly Price's thought-provoking On the Tee with Dr. P to Connor Lewis's Talking Golf History, fabulous episode on Bernard Darwin up there at the moment, and the Innovative Blind Shots podcast from the network's own Kentucky correspondent, Dave Hill, better known to many as one bearded golfer. The other thing you should be doing is making your way to the golfsociety.com.au forward slash talkandgolf and cashing in on the fabulous $25 discount offer for Talking Golf listeners on their first visit. For those not in the know, the golfsociety.com.au is an innovative online apparel and accessories retailer with all the very latest styles from the very best brands, including Travis Matthew, Hugo Boss, Ralph Lauren, Nike, and plenty more. That's the golfsociety.com.au forward slash golf to look your best on course today. Now, back to Will Watt. I wonder, Will, I guess the frustration for me is that I constantly bump up against is that our space is really golf only. Whilst, and I know you're making an effort, and I agree that the things you do are interesting and good and they're beyond golf. You'll never see Tiger Woods on the cover of Caddy Magazine telling you how to hold more putts or any of those sorts of things, which we know sell. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. There's a space for every, there's a place for everybody in this marketplace. But how do we extend our voice beyond the golf population? Even Caddy Magazine, I would imagine, by far the bulk of its readership is golfers. What responsibility do we all have as media? And that includes you too now, Logan. I know you're not working media, but you are media. What responsibilities do we have and how might we go about that, Will? That's a big question and probably an unfair one to ask you, but we should all be thinking about that, should we not? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, I, there was a, a thread, I think, on Twitter the other day talking about um, somebody who had gone up to a tee box and someone teed off and they said, nice shot, mate, and the, the group ahead just sort of scowled at them and walked off. Um, and it's interesting that that kind of non-welcoming and, yeah, just that elitist approach does exist and we have to first acknowledge it mm-hmm. and and then, I guess, be the, be the change we want to see in the game, which... Uh, yeah, it's just, uh, I mean, how often would you go out and, and take someone out on the golf course who's never played before? It's not it's not something a lot of us do, even well, though we might. Rod's say, always had that idea, the bring a, bring a mate to bring golf. Bring a mate to golf. Yeah. That's someone who's never played. You'd get you the club trademark. to give them some. Trademark yeah, that, right. Yeah, <laughs> along with tea party. Tea party is When well. we finish, we'll yeah. have a tea party. The idea of that, though, and that, that is true, and I think it's all golfers, not just us in the media. It, the hardest part is to get to that uh, non-golf 
market. I'm just not sure how we can go about doing it. Most people in golf don't think about the game the way we do, I don't think. I think we're in the minority where we find it something much more deeper and it's as much cerebrally stimulating as anything else, to be honest with you. I mean, I haven't played golf for a long time, but my interest in the game is no less because of that. And I just wonder how we go about presenting that and making people outside the game understand that it's not just what you see on TV. If you're a non-golfer, your experience of golf would be watching Tiger Woods hold a series of shortish sort of putts that look pretty straightforward. Yep. Yep. It doesn't the, even look that hard. Well, the thing that occurs to me, and you've hit upon it a few times, I think, Rod, is something like Caddy Mag is the ideal introduction mm. to golf if mm-hmm. you could just clear away almost all of the existing golf media and start <laughs> again. Then it, it get, remove all of that noise then if what you're left with is Caddy Mag and Golfer's Journal and McKellar. That's not going to satisfy the bulk of the golf market. There is still a place for the mainstream golf and golf channel and what we watch on CBS. Yeah. All of those things definitely have And, and the equipment stuff as well. Very much. People love to go deep in that, obviously. And it's a business. I mean, why would you want to close down an industry? That doesn't make any sense no, either. that's right. But the the tone I think you get from these, these journals and – and from a lot of online media as well these days, that's been produced. There's a lot of excellent stuff being produced. I think the tone that you get for that sets the right tone for uh, bringing the right attitudes into golf. And the right attitudes is a dangerous attitudes thing to say. Attitudes that but, match but yours is this what you're no, talking but about. It's just the, <laughs> something, something that will serve golf well into the future where outsiders start to think about golf differently. And and that golf itself starts to think about it in a, itself in a more sustainable way. Golf attracts anti, doesn't it? Yes. Anti golf. And uh, uh, shout out to Matt Mollica. We discussed mm-hmm. with was I think it was with Clates. He said he'd stumbled across some girl on Twitter who hated golf. Matt Mollica tracked her down for us and sent her one of her YouTube videos. Yep. Interesting stuff. I haven't yet, but I do intend I, to reach out and see if she wants to come on the show. I watched it and I kind of agreed with every single yeah. thing she said, right, right up until the point where she just wants to abolish That's golf right. completely. I, that, you know, we don't have any common ground there, but everything else she said was quite true. Uh, it's the problem with golf, thing. isn't it, Will? All of those stereotypes do exist within the game. And we as golfers come across them all the time. We can't deny them. It's not the totality of golf, but we can't deny that they exist. And that's a that's kind of part of the problem, isn't it? Yeah, and that was, again, part of the motivation behind Caddy was seeing this game that I loved not being presented in the way that I thought um, it could be, and it wasn't the side of the game that I was experiencing pl- out there playing in a very social way and a very relaxed way, and it, yet all I was being told was I needed to go for more distance and I needed to follow the pro tour um, and I needed to worry about my score. So the yeah, we're, trying, we're doing, our, doing our best, Rod, to um, take on that responsibility and, and put out content that's not just um, – not just about the the kind of elite side of the game. It's it's focusing on those less tangible um, and more um, ethereal parts of golf, which it's kind of it's more difficult to convey to people. Um, but it's I think it's a very important part of the game that separates it from a lot of other sports. No, I agree. All that other stuff is the business of the game. We often say that it's the business of golf that sort of gets in the way of golf mm-hmm. in so many ways. And all of those things you talk about are those. As I said, there is a place. And I've made my living for a good number of years out of mainstream golf magazines and websites and those sorts of things. So there's, you know, I certainly wouldn't speak against that. But I do think there's space in the market for things like Caddy Magazine. You're doing a terrific job. We're going to come to your book in a second, Will. But before we do, I mentioned earlier there's a particular story you wrote 
Oh, I might have even been way back in one of the first two or three issues about the Heathland plants of Melbourne, and there was a couple of them that survive only at Kingston Heath. And we, this is a theme that's sort of bobbed up the last couple of weeks on the show. Harley Cruz talked about it. We know Royal Melbourne has uh, a whole bunch of plants that they do an, an awful lot of work to maintain. They have an open day each year where local uh, botanists and whatnot come in and have a look at some of the Heathland plants they've got there which are disappearing from the place. Tell us a little bit about that story and why that belongs in a golf magazine. I think it does. But it might be a hard sell to pitch that to one of the mainstream golf mags and get them to run it. So tell us how you came across that story, what it's about, and why it's important for golf and golfers, I think, to see that sort of content. Yeah, well, I just thought it was uh, a fascinating um, story at Kingston Heath there. I was playing, I was having a uh, playing lesson out there with um, Matt Cleverton, and we'd come across, I think it was on the 12th hole, um, the one of the common heath plants, and Pete Murray was out there, their um, indigenous plant specialist, and he said that that's the club emblem you've got right there. Uh, and it turned out that was the uh, sole surviving um, common heath plant on that property back when before the indigenous plant um, program started there. And they since then have obviously um, planted that throughout the course and as well as a lot of other rare plants. And sort of if you get chatting to Pete about this sort of thing, you you might have to let a couple of groups play through because he's pretty <laughs> passionate about it. Um, so, yeah, I kind of uh, was really interested in his passion about it. And w- that was around the time we uh, had just put out number one and asked him if we could um, – I think we're actually still – this might have actually been in number one. So I think it might probably, have been. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I asked if we could come back and, and have a look around his nursery there and really just learnt a lot off him. And that was a, a whole new world to me to be uh, hearing about this stuff because I'd not really taken that much note of um, the different species of plants you'd see around a golf course up until that point. And he was driving us around in a golf cart, taking us to some of the different uh, places around the course where he planted some um, quite rare species and he was hating on some of the introduced species around the place. And I was, yeah, it's really opened my eyes to it all. Um, and I think that was a really important um, moment for me to realize that some of these sandbell courses can actually be good for the area in not just providing amazing world-class golf courses, but providing a service to um, the the sustainability of the the area and and almost like a botanical garden of species of what used to be around that um, that very um, distinctive trademark um, sand belt style. Uh, so yeah, it was pretty cool to learn from Pete about all that. And I I know Royal Melbourne's a leader in that space as well. And uh, it seems like all of the sand belt courses are now embracing that. Um, I know we're doing some work at Victoria with um, Mike Cocking and Jeff Ogilvy recently, and they were discussing some of the work they'd done clearing the um, some of the tea tree and um, other trees that have been um, kind of overgrown in these heathland areas. Once they clear out those trees, the the seed bank of um, heathland plants that are is just lying in wait there then comes to life, and you get all these amazing species popping up. And same at Peninsula Kingswood, they they found the same thing, that they're not out there throwing seeds around or anything. It's just all they have to do is oh, provide really? wow. enough light and let the um, let those species come back. And they're actually really 
hard. Once they get going, they're very hardy and they don't require a lot of watering and they look beautiful. So it's, um, it's a really exciting part of the sand belt in particular. Um, they can probably be applied to different areas in terms of their own um, indigenous species, I would have thought. We've seen New South Wales Golf Club does a lot of that similar stuff, clearing out clearing out stuff and then doing a controlled burn. Yeah. It always amazes me how a controlled burn produces such amazing results. The Australian, like, the Australian native bush, isn't it? That's, that's how right. it works. You burn well, we might be there are, somebody on the podcast whose Instagram's full of burning golf <laughs> well. If only she'd answer her email. Answer your email, Sarah. We want to have a chat to you soon. The thing I love about that, Will, and I suppose this is for you, Adrian, as well, you can do that at King's Heath. There will be a significant percentage of the Kings and Heath membership will A, know nothing about that, B, be completely uninterested in it, C, will never have noticed any of the plants at the golf course, let alone ones that might have been endangered, and D, you can be doing all of that, something worthwhile, promoting that outside of golf, and have no impact whatsoever on the golf, the golf course, or the people who pay for it to exist. And that's, it's the perfect storm of, and that's the perfect sort of story. Uh, it's one of the sorts of stories that the non-golf world should and needs to know about. And Golf doesn't have a lot of environmental things to pin, <laughs> to pin itself on, and each one that we do needs to be promoted and celebrated. And it's interesting how much of that gets uncovered just through what the the attitude Will described earlier of just being curious. Yeah, yeah. Pete, uh, Pete Murray, though, I think he's a is he a botanist, the guy that you talked to? Has he got any other interesting golf aside from the plants on the golf course there at Kingston Heath and other sandbelt courses? Does he play the game or does he just happen to hear about these plants and he came out to have a look? Uh, no, so he's employed by the club. Um, right. But, yeah, he, he's not a big golfer. Uh-huh. Uh, but, yeah, he was uh, working in the Indigenous uh, nursery prior prior to Kingston Heath, I believe. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Um, so he, yeah, he'll get very excited about a, a rare species of um, Heath and crouched down and, and pulled back some some surrounding plants and show you this tiny little um, flower that he said you know it was on the edge of extinction until uh, they found it and started cultivating it in that area. Fantastic! I'm always impressed by those people who can look at a like a square <laughs> meter of heathland <laughs> and pick out like a hundred different species yeah, in in a that belongs know, a that doesn't that shouldn't be there. That's yeah. in the right spot. And and as you say, how hardy they are! It's amazing what flourishes just naturally when you let the native species take over. And so much of golf has so much introduced. More beautiful, species. it's less uh, less maintenance. Uh, just everything about it makes a whole lot more sense. Let's move on a bit, Will. I've got one more oh, okay, magazine yep. question before yep. we go. The name Will. Um, I'm interested to hear how you came about the name Caddy Mag and the internal discussions you had with your found, co-founders about the spelling of Caddy. Ooh, yeah, there was some nice, discussion about that. Nice. Uh, the name, my wife actually came up with that. Um, we were just driving along one day and I was explaining the whole concept of it and she just said, you could call it Caddy and that just um, seemed like a, a very, um, it kind of ticked a lot of boxes in that it speaks to that um, Kind of younger, youthful demographic as well. Most caddies are generally younger. One one of the problems, and and also just speaks a little bit to um, just the social element of the game, in that where most caddies will be quite um, the kind of the caddy barn has that really social element to it. So you you've got um, yeah, youthful and and social elements was kind of the main 
things we liked about the name. But it did come into some problems in the US where they take things quite literally over there and they... <laughs> oh, don't. A lot, we've had the question that the magazine for Caddy. Wow. So, <laughs> I like, yeah. I mean, it makes a lot of sense as a companion to the golfer. I think that's... Yeah, that's, that's nice. Is that what you were, you were hoping Will would say that? Because you had that... Well, no, I, had just, I just had to say it. I kind of wish I had said that. Yeah, that, yeah. We'll go back and we can do it again, Will. I'll, I'll cut Logue out of it there. And the it spelling. Actually, it, well, come to the spelling. It crosses over to the non-golf market as well. Even non-golfers understand what a caddy is and the rotten. Far more so Indeed. than hacker or bunkered or any of the other golf-specific terms that magazines will choose. Indeed. Caddy crosses over nicely. Now, what about the spelling, Will? Did any ashtrays uh, get thrown around yeah, the room while you were discussing that? It's a proper that? Scottish spelling. I so oh, know. You've got it right. Yeah. Well, clearly. Yeah. We better check that with Huggy, actually. Because Huggy goes with a Y, not an IE. I oh, dear. called him out as an IE once, and he told me it was a Y. So, publicly on Twitter. There you go. Uh, interesting. So, uh, well, good stuff. So, if you're interested in Caddy Magazine, where do people get it apart? Um, Will? Uh, caddymag.com and we're on at caddymag at most of the socials. You can find it at real, uh, real estate agents. You, you probably can find some at real estate agents around the place, but it does make a beautiful coffee table book. It is. Well. It's every a, every edition. It's a bi, it's a biannual coffee table book because mm. uh, it's got it's very golf, uh, very uh, photography heavy, which is no no surprise given what Will does for a living, but also because golf does lend itself to that, which is kind of how Speaking I guess coffee table. Will. That's right. You probably probably how you ended up with a book. Starting a magazine was a big decision. What were you thinking when you thought, you know what I might do? A book. <laughs> yeah, again, if I'd known how much work it was going to be, I'm not sure if we would have done it. But um, the I had spoken earlier about uh, Kinfolk magazine was one of the inspirations for Caddy, and they had put out a compilation book, Kinfolk Table, which I came across a couple of years ago. And I was reading through, and you know, once you're in the game, you start one of the most interesting pages that you go to is uh, all the all the um, specs for the book and who put it together. And, and it was Hardy Grant Publishing, which is um, a Melbourne-based publishing house, um, which I thought was pretty interesting. And then I kind of reached out to them and set up a meeting uh, and took, took my stack of Caddy magazines in and um, thought, you know, what, what if we put some of the best stories here together into a really nice hardcover book? And they loved the idea. And about twelve months later, we had a we had a book. So it was a pretty straightforward process, really, from from our perspective. But we just thought that it's been so much work, sort of self publishing the the magazine, and we had this great bank of stories that we don't put a lot of these stories online either. So it kind of has a um, and each, you know, there's only three, 4,000 copies, some of those early editions. So a lot of people haven't actually seen a lot of these stories. So it was a chance to give those stories a, a second life. And um, working with Hardy Grant's been pretty amazing. They, they took, um, you know, what was a, a fairly, um, I mean, you've got f four years of evolution of us publishing. So there, a lot's changed from the first few editions to what we're putting out now. Um, so be able to, to, to be able to bring all those together and create something as coherent as this book, a lot of the credit there goes to the publishers we work with and being able to um, take what we've done and, and really craft it into um, something that's very – I'm super proud of the book and I think it's um, a real testament to a lot of the work we've done over the, over the years and some of the amazing contributors we've had. What, what's it called? 
What's the book's title? Lofted. Lofted. I'm holding a copy of it in my hands here. And it is a beautiful edition. It's a, uh, a hard cover and uh, on very good paper stock. And the photography is just beautiful. You can just randomly open it to any page. And uh, the photography that's there is, is something that, it, like every single photograph in there is, is better than anything I've ever put on my Instagram, <laughs> which is very humbling. Um, and then the uh, the great stories around it are, uh, are fantastic as well. It's the sort of book you can just immerse yourself in at any time of day. Like the magazine will, what's the market for books in the modern world? Uh, so the publisher sort of had in mind this kind of a, a gift market really. Um, so it's come out just before Father's Day and before Christmas. So I think a lot of their idea for the market of this book is as a gift for the golfer in someone's life so they're um i think it's again trying to reach out to those people who they know about golf they might have been around the game a little bit with someone in their family but they're not necessarily the hardcore golfer um, but they know someone who is so again we're trying to bridge that gap of um making golf a little bit more accessible and and creating something that has enough kind of physical um, beauty and and design about it that you don't necessarily have to be completely obsessed with the game to enjoy reading this book. And there's some stories in there that um, you know, I think uh, there's a story about the world's longest golf hole, the Mongolia journey. I don't know if you read that one. I haven't. Did you, Logue? Because you've had the book. We've got one between (laughs) us at the moment, and that between us at at this stage has meant that you've had it. It it was sent to me. It did have your name, but it was sent to my office. So like Caddy and Caddy, there's some discussion to be had there about the rights and wrongs of that. What I like about this book, Will, my other half's brother has a house up on the Sunshine Coast, which started as their sort of weekend or holiday home, and they've added to it and added to it, and they've retired and now moved there. But when you go there, it feels like you're on – Probably yeah, one of those holiday sort of places. And they always have these amazing books on the coffee table. They're different every time. They sort of tend to be pictorial books of Greece or France, Paris, all sort, that sort of thing. This is the sort of thing that can fit neatly in there, and there's a point to what I'm getting to here. I don't know whether you've ever tried this experiment with non-golfers, particularly in Sydney, I think this is true, Logue. People's perception of golf, if they've never played it, is the golf courses they drive past around Sydney on main roads. Uh, Pennant Hills Golf Club is one that springs to mind. And they sort of look at the fence. Asquith Golf Club, you drive past quite often if you're up in that part of the world. And you look you look through the fence and you see a very green, quite tree-lined. If you know nothing about golf, it all looks quite pleasant and nice and, and, and appealing. If you show those people photos of Barnboogle Dunes or some of the great golf courses of Scotland, the first thing that happens, they don't recognise it as golf. And immediately you can see their attitude towards the game and what it can be changes. And a book like this could sit in a house like my half's brother's place and if it was a place that was rented out and people who have no interest in golf could pick it up and look at some of these pictures. I think that goes as far towards changing the image of the game as any of the other stuff that we've talked about. Spark an interest. And an interest. This Wow, this is such a potentially diverse landscapes that it can be found. Why is this considered to be great golf when I drive past that beautifully manicured place every day on my way to work? It looks fantastic to me like a garden. Yep. Well, Tony Deere posted a tweet earlier this week because the Good man, uh, US amateurs on at uh-huh. uh, Banded Dunes. Oh, yes, he and did. Tony posted a tweet oh, of 
I've, I've seen from Band and Dunes with beautiful browned out fairways and everything was crispy and, and rugged. Uh, and right alongside it, he posted a screenshot from the latest PGA Tour event. Where, where is it? Just, I can't remember where it is. Where the <laughs> contrast Sedgefield, I think. Sedgefield, which is actually Wyndham's. It's actually a pretty good, pretty golf good golf course. course. It's a very it's good a Don- golf course. course. Yeah, that's right. But just so overwatered. Nothing highlighted for me more the fact of how that contrast of how overwatered and green and soft when you put the, them next to each the other. Really. Was. And yeah, the one one was fantastic to watch on TV, and the other was just the same thing every week. This this homogenized product. And you, we had the the ladies playing at Renaissance as well, which was really good viewing this weekend. Uh, but yeah, that that contrast is amazing, and I can't help but think if one of them was more prevalent in golf media, the the the, the crispy browned out rugged one, that golf would be the image problem. The, the image less. problem would be, and it is in fact less in the UK. Well, are we being too super woke? Is our mate woke Kenzie just was he passed out by now? <laughs> And is there a, no, and is there no. a serious is there a danger in that in being overwoke? In what respect? Is it a lot of golfers find? I think we're part of the, if not the woke people, we're in tune with a lot of the woke mindset. Not so much the sticks in the bag and all that sort of stuff. Although you do carry a one strap bag. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But that whole that's another form of exclusion, isn't it? being part of the woke golf movement that hates the PGA Tour, hates any golf course that wasn't built in the golden age. I mean, you know, he, he parodies his account, but there is some Just, truth to everything that he says. If you're using the word woke this many times in a few sentences, Rob, I'm not you're not woke. very woke, yeah. Oh, fair enough. Well, I'm, I'm okay. What about you two? <laughs> I, don't, I don't see a huge problem with getting um, that deep into the game that some of those things become interesting to you. But, um, like... Um, like Adrian was saying, presenting some of these places that aren't the stereotypical Augusta National look uh, of golf is pretty um, kind of it's yeah it's hard for that stuff to break through to the general consciousness. So there's no stories in this book I don't think that um, really speak to that. Kind of over. Oh, there's a couple actually to that over <laughs> manicured stuff. Um, so yeah, I think if some if somebody who didn't really play golf picked up this book and the the impression they're going to get of the game and the, the different styles of it's going to be wildly different to what they might have had prior to reading it. Mm. What is the role of professional golf in both Caddy Magazine and the book? Obviously, is finished now. But what role does professional golf play? It's not unimportant, is it? Will uh, the pro game is, well, I don't know, is it that important to everyday golfers out there? I know the I, I play with probably a rotation of a dozen different um, friends out on the course and only about two or three of those actually follow the pro tour. Um, it's there to serve itself at this point, I think, isn't it? It's not there to be a advertisement for golf. It's there to be. Yeah, I hope not. I hope yeah. it's not because if that's the ad. <laughs> there's something wrong with the product. No, it's, I it's guess there that's to what be I think self-sustaining and be a be a so paying job for. Don't we as golfers, with the attitude that it's not really what golf is about, have a responsibility to ask professional golf to represent the game more like we would suggest to say? Would I haven't put that very uh, yeah very eloquently at all? But should we as golfers not be asking the PGA Tour to consider not playing all of their golf co- golf on overwatered golf courses? that look good on television and are too bright green 
what what's our responsibility there? Because the ga- professional game does exist, whether we as golfers decide to take an interest in it or not is neither here nor there. Non-golfers certainly see it at least four or five times a year. On their televisions, in their news packages, when Tiger Woods win the Masters, that goes, you know, we know that goes around the world. When Adam Scott won the Masters, that goes all across Australia and gets lots and lots of coverage. That footage gets played over and over and over again, and that footage is of a bright green golf course. Yeah. Well, they're not, I mean, they're not listening to us, Rod, but there, there is one word that cuts through to them, and that is boring. Yeah. And they, they do fear being boring, and I think if that message can get through... That what they're the product that they're putting up is just not not interesting. It's boring. Then, you know, they, they might actually start to take action. But then they're not listening to any reasoned argument about what's good for the game or anything. It's it's just you know how many eyeballs are mm. getting. What do you reckon, Will? Do you take any interest in professional golf at all? Uh, I went through a few years ago. I got quite into it once the um, the online subscription models came out so you could subscribe for I think it was about 10 bucks a month and get um i quite enjoyed watching the featured groups coverage where you could just watch a, a group play the entire round and actually see some of the mistakes that they made and get to see them structure around i found all that quite interesting um it's a different way to mm. watch the coverage mm, the really good so yeah. that's just ricky fowler starting. every week though isn't it that's, <laughs> so i suppose he shows you it's ricky fowler every week isn't it that, <laughs> yeah. but he shows you plenty yeah. of mistakes i guess if, if that's what you're looking for yeah and i just found that fascinating for a while but i kind of um that that's got its own limitations as well and i think yeah I, the rollback debates obviously um first and foremost when you think about the pro tour and what's happening there so it's this year i've really not had a lot of interest in it to be honest hasn't been much to be interested in for the first part of yours and golf rightly has been put in perspective i think and professional golf in particular for a lot of golfers has been put in perspective by the pandemic and all the other fallout around what's happened there we know golf was sort of first back amongst the sports and all the rest of it but it feels a bit more background to me these days, golf, professional golf. It's much more in the background than it used to be. And that might just be me and my changing circumstances. Your, your jaundiced eye. That's harsh. <laughs> That's harsh, but that, that might be... Uh, it doesn't appeal to your old jaundiced eye. I, I used to take some joy in, in not enjoying it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? There was some joy in just, you know, being anti it, but that sort of uh, has It's fresh to it. somebody. Yeah, no, look, no doubt. It, it, and it, it, it is interesting. I, I think that there is a whole segment of us who undervalue the importance of professional golf in many ways. Well, we know Jeff Ogilvie came to the game by looking over his back fence and watching Greg Norman and then jumping the fence and all of those sorts of things and went on to win a US Open. That's fantastic. A whole bunch of other kids did the same who didn't go on to play professional golf, who went on to become accountants and architects and builders and all those other things and still love and, and make up what is the actual game, which is the rest of us who, for the most part, are hopeless but love it regardless. So there is an important... And uh, just having hated on the pro, pro game for... The last few minutes. I mean, it was only six or seven months ago we were at Royal Melbourne, just absolutely loving it. Sick. So it it can be great. Um, that was the best of golf, wasn't it, Will? That was the very best of professional golf. I thought. Exactly. Yeah. Melbourne. It was just a pleasure to be there, and yeah, a privilege as well, I, I heard you say recently. So yeah, it can be amazing. It's just a shame that there isn't a hell of a lot more of that because those golf courses are out there mm-hmm. and it just needs the right direction and the, yeah, the, a very different 
culture shift needs to happen at the um, PGA Tour, that's for sure. Hmm. Just, just a quick diversion. I'm, I'm on the search for the best of professional golf, as you know, Rod, and I feel like there's a crossover in time. And I, this is a call out to our oh, listeners. This is, yeah, this is good stuff, actually. Um, well, thank you. Uh, I, I may continue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. This uh, is, sorry. <laughs> Other people aren't up to speed with this idea. This is good stuff. This is up there with the team um, party. I feel like there's a crossover in the history of golf where the balance between the golf course and the professional golfer was, was in balance. Mm-hmm. And- I suspect. I mean, this is no nothing, no great insight here, but it was probably somewhere in the late seventies and the early eighties that that occurred. That 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 crossover between the equipment and the skills of the players and the challenge presented by the golf courses was in unison, and we experienced the golden age of professional golf or the peak of professional golf. And the golf courses, for the most part, at that point weren't uh, offensive. They, they weren't, they weren't uh, into the phase of playing golf, professional golf on resort courses. There was still a lot of golf played on classic courses. And so I'm wondering what what is the greatest – somebody out there might have a nomination for this, but what is the greatest uh, tournament, tournament in the history of golf with those criteria? Not oh. necessarily an exciting finish, no. but just where the battle between bat and ball, the battle between the golfer and the course – And within the golf reached themselves. So. It's epoch, the epoch of professional golf. So I'm plumping for the 1993 Open. I think that's a little too late. I know that you think it's too late, but everyone's allowed to have their own opinion, Adrian. Yeah. Uh, they're not just the right opinions that you share. So I'm going 93 Open. When Norman won with 64 and was in awe of himself, Faldo was there, Paven was there, Langer was there. Uh, that was – I think it fulfills all the yeah. criteria. So some of the criteria, the course has got to be – you know, not overwatered. It's it, like so pre, like pre irrigation in a lot of these great. But eighty four Australian Open we've been watching that Rob Williams. Eighty four, yeah. no irrigation. I mean, some clades told us that ticks all the boxes yeah. except for the fact that the field wasn't super strong. It had had some great players, and from an Australian perspective, it may be the epoch of Australian professional golf is that eighty four Australian Open, and that's what Watson, got, got me Langer. thinking about it. Was Langer in that field? Was Langer in that field? I, I think he was. But wasn't you it? had Baker, Finch, and Norman, and Watson in the final group, so it doesn't get a lot better than that. Um, but second last group, Clayton. Clayton's in the second last group. But yeah, so I'm thinking around the Sandy Lyle British Open is is probably my one. And again, it doesn't have to be a great finish, but that that British Open for me was pretty sensational in terms of the battle between golf course and golfer. You might think about Jewel in the Sun. You got any thoughts about that, Will? Are you deep enough into professional golf to have some thoughts? Hey, Clayton's the man to ask about this, I think. Yeah, no, you guys are well down the nerd track. <laughs> Sorry, mate. Did you not off there? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I will say I did enjoy watching, um, I think it was VJ Singh, Freddie Couples, yeah. and Ernie Els on the range oh, okay. recently, and just the rhythm that those guys had. Um, did you see you that? I did. It was like they'd staged it. No, it was amazing. Yeah. Couples especially. That's, that's golfing ASMR. Yeah. <laughs> What's an ASMR? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about it later. Okay. All right. I'll wait until later. Um, see, I'm not woke. I've just proved it. Not only do I use the word too much, I actually don't have any understanding of what's going on around the place. Uh, Will, where can people get the book? Uh, so it's available in Australia and New Zealand on Booktopia. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the world, it's on Amazon, I believe. Uh, we've had a bit of trouble getting it into Asia, but yeah, most places, Amazon. And Logue, because you've had it. You've had the chance to mm-hmm. look through it. I haven't yet. Give us a quick pacey. Why should people think about buying it? Well, it's beautiful. Well, why is your family going to buy it for you for Father's Day so I can have this copy? <laughs> I, it, it's a it's a beautiful edition. If you're wanting to, I, I, it's a little bit like a trade paperback 
for the comic world. Like it gets you up to speed with Caddy Mag. Like I haven't, sorry, well, I haven't had a subscription to Caddy Mag, but um, having this sort of gets you up to speed. And then now I'll, I'll take out a subscription to Caddy Mag and I'll be, I'll be sort of up to date. Like I think it's great that it's got uh, this collection of best of stories from the last few years of Caddy Mag. And uh, that for no other reason would be a great, great reason to get it and then parlay that into a subscription to Caddy Mag. Indeed. And for those uh, budding golf riders out there, Will, of which there are hundreds, possibly thousands, how do they get in touch with you to pitch a story idea? Uh, so we've got a page on our website, um, caddymag.com slash contribute, and we've got some guidelines there of what we sort of look for in a written piece and also for photography and um, art pieces as well. So that's a good place to start there. And, yeah, we're very interested in – uncovering new talent and um, the pages of Caddy are open to um, some anything new and fresh and interesting and, and exploring that curiosity of the game. And just, just a, a bit of a plug on the book, I think uh, one of the advantages of working with a big publisher was the, the price point on this book, which is $45. Oh, yeah, are you book. serious? It's got to be yeah. double that, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm just looking at it now. Yeah, exactly. So the... They've done an amazing job to yeah. do something of that high quality, and I think it's two hundred and sixty odd, you know, really heavy stock, mm. um, full foot, full color photography pages on nice hard cover with a, yeah, so um, yeah, perfect kind of gift price there as well. So that is legitimately beautiful typography as well. That is legitimately cheap. Um, uh, we haven't talked about enough, but that that part of Caddy Magazine being open to all might be the most important. Part. Were you asking for yourself, Rod? No. <laughs> I, as, soon, as soon as Will said new and fresh, though. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's exactly enough. right. Yeah, new and yeah. fresh. Have you, un- have you uncovered anyone, anything that you've uh, been particularly interested in at this point? Well, we've talked about this before on the podcast about uh, the internet opening up new avenues for people who otherwise might never have found a voice in media. I've got, I've got a name I'll throw out there once. Uh, have you uncovered we'll anyone yet? Uh, sorry, Adrian, were you going to go? Or? Oh, Nicholas Mills, I think. is. I'm a big fan of Nicholas Mills and I, I love that he's contributed a couple of things for you. Yeah, Nick's done some awesome pieces over the, uh, I think, three or four issues now. Uh, the most recent one we had, Lucas Michelle report back on uh, Sandhills, which he played, I'm not sure if it was before or after he won the US Amateur. Um, so that was that was pretty cool to get his perspective. And he's um, one of those multi-talented yep. chaps who uh, took some amazing photos, wrote a beautiful piece, and then went on to book his ticket to Augusta. So. That was a pretty cool piece, and and um, we've had some amazing photographers through there over the years as well. So Christian Haffer, a lot of people would know from Instagram. Um, we were the first to publish some of his work, um, and also some of the the a lot of people have written their first article for Caddy. So um, yeah, we're quite quite proud to um, provide that space for people. Yeah, fabulous. Including, I think, Matt Molliker, if I'm not mistaken, wrote his, uh, made his editorial debut in Caddy, did he not, with a, a story about the ball and distance and rollback, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, he, he really opened my eyes to rollback as I edited his piece and uh, and laid it out and got interested in the debate and then have since um, learnt a lot more through through yourself and and Clates and others in that space. And, um, yeah, we've got that the rollback alliance um, kicked off now, which um, be great to chat to you guys about at some point as well. Yeah, we're going to have both of you on to talk about that. But he is what we would call a fervent advocate 
mm-hmm. a rollback. And an articulate one. Articulate and sensible, balanced, open to the other side of the discussion. He ticks all of the boxes as exactly the sort of person we want talking about rollback. He asked me to be an ambassador for it, but I didn't feel that that was uh, – given that I have a mainstream media role and have done for a long time, that that wasn't the sensible move either for the organisation or for me necessarily. There's going to be some semblance of... It's the only it's the only topic that I really have a strong opinion on that I state. The rest of it I try to be objective, but that's the one that I do, but still. Anyway, wandering into waters there that we don't need to charter. Well, it's been fantastic to uh, chat to you, mate. This won't be the last time I'm sure that you appear on the Good Good podcast, but congratulations on the book and a belated congratulations on the Caddy Mag. Five years is a hell of an effort, mate. You probably didn't realise. You probably didn't see that when you started it, and you certainly didn't see the work in it, but it's been fantastic, a fantastic effort to get it this far, mate. Thanks for chatting to us today. Really enjoyed it. Absolute pleasure, guys. Thank you for having me on and um, all the best. It's literally the least we could do. And I'm always up for the least we can do, Will. Logue, good to have you along as always, mate. Did you think of a highlight while we're... Uh, actually, I better get one from Will too. No, speaking speaking to Will's the highlight for me this week, actually. It is someone Monday. I've always admired. And <laughs> I, I like how he sort of appears to just be cruising through life. But He's- nonetheless, he must be absolutely working his ass off because it takes a lot it just takes a lot of time sitting at computers and doing stuff to produce this stuff and uh i, I find will's work ethic must be you are getting an amount impressive. done that is making the rest of us look bad will so we'd appreciate it if you stop that my friend i don't care if you're in lockdown take a break from time to time. did you have a golf highlight this week will no golf in melbourne it hasn't been for a couple of weeks won't cool. be for a couple of weeks more it's harsh can you have a golf highlight under those circumstances uh no it's not great down here at the moment, <laughs> no, mate. That's awful. Uh, I've been dreaming about golf. Does that help? Can your drone reach any golf courses from the house? <laughs> from <Is> that- <laughs> Not legally. Not legally. Uh, outstanding stuff. Good to chat to you, mate. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, guys. As Will Watt from Caddy Magazine and his new book, Lofted. What's the tagline there, Adrian? Just flip it over so I can see it. Remarkable and far-flung adventures for the modern golfer. Yeah, and that is not overselling it. It's uh, beautifully done and terrific. Counts you out, though, doesn't it? Yeah, terrific. (laughs) Unless you can drive there, yes. Uh, Terrific gift for Father's Day. That's it for episode 45 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. We will be back to do it all again next week if our guest answers her Mm -hmm. email. We'll still be back regardless, but hopefully we'll be chatting with her. Good to have your company. We'll see you then here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.